0: everybody um, yay, it's good to be with you all on this Mother's Day, as Cameron said, my name is Leanne, and I am married to this sorry handsome guy here in the front with his leg up on a chair. I'm getting all choked up. <laughs> um, and we have three lovely kids, and so it is a happy Mother's Day to me and to all of you. <laughs> and also just to those of you who might not have biological kids, um, we believe women have a mothering role, whether it's your own kids or with other people's kids, we get to mother those around us. And so we celebrate this t- this morning. Um, we are finishing the book of Ezra Today, which is very exciting. We are on chapter 9 and 10. And then next week, we go straight into Nehemiah. And that's because Ezra and Nehemiah used to be one book. And so um, they've now separated them, but we're going to read it as if it's one book. And so next week, Paulie will actually be up here. I'm not sure logistically how that's going to look or how it's going to work, um, but he will somehow make it up here with his crutches. Um, and so here we go Ezra 9 and 10. I have to say before we dive in, that it is quite a challenging text, Um, and everything in me wanted to run a mile rather than teach from this passage. But as a church, we believe that all of scripture is God-breathed and has something to teach us, no matter how challenging it is. And so today's scripture does have something to teach us, and what we're gonna find it teaches us is something about the circle that we find ourselves going round and round in. It's in our attempts to do better and better. Maybe you can relate to the following circles we find ourselves going in. Um, I'm going to do one for the mothers up front because, yeah, hello, this is your day after all. Um, That that new beginning of, you know what, we're going to reset as a family and we're going to talk about our chores and everyone is going to do it better and properly this time. And we seat everyone and we get everyone on board. We are, we have clear expectations. We have clear consequences and we start on this new beginning only to find within about three days the dishes are still not making their way to the dishwasher and so on and so on we find ourselves going in that circle maybe a new beginning for you looks like getting a new laptop and it's going to be better this time and you're going to file better which means you're going to find your documents more easily and so no matter what we love this new beginning we love thinking this time it'll be different But we often find ourselves circling right back to where we started. And so today's text is a story of a people who have had a new beginning. They were sent into exile and they've returned to Jerusalem. They've been given a second chance to rebuild this temple, to start again as this holy people of God. And this time they were not going to mess it up. Okay, this was their new beginning. And that's where we find ourselves now in chapter 9 and 10. We've already read about the temple being rebuilt. Actually, this is now 60 years later, and Ezra has come to Jerusalem. He's gone on a long journey to get there, and he's coming to teach the people the ways of God. And so as he arrived with great excitement, within a few days, officials come to him, and they drop a bit of a bombshell. So let's read what they come and tell him. It's in Ezra chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the land. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. What's going on here? Okay, they've come to notify him, Ezra, of a problem. It seems that quite a few of the returned exiles have married the woman from the nations surrounding Jerusalem. And now the holy race, we read, has been mixed With the people from these other lands, and this is described as faithlessness. We need to pause at this stage and just make a couple of notes. It's really important for us to understand that this scripture is not advocating for racial purity, but for spiritual purity. So, how can we say that? If you read in the Bible, you'll see that even though God had selected the small group of people, He called them His chosen people. They had always included people from other nations. We read about it when they ex- when they came out of Egypt, that it was a mixed multitude that came out. It wasn't just Jewish people. Egyptians who had seen the ten plagues and had been astounded at this God that could do this, had actually joined some of them, well, joined them as they left. Other examples that are worth noting from the Old Testament is that Moses was married to a Gentile woman, Zipporah. And Ruth, you know, Ruth, one of the most well-known women in the Old Testament, she was a Moabite, and she married a Jewish man called Boaz. So what is going on here? Because it seems then that you could marry from foreign women. What's the difference between what's happening here in this text and what we've seen in other parts of Scripture? The difference is that the wives that had married in, or had married these priests and Levites and these leaders, had continued to worship and follow after the gods of their, their current country of origin. So they had not turned away from their gods. They'd continued to worship their gods. And that is described as faithlessness in verse 2. And it's because marriage is not just partnership. It's not just, okay, you do your thing, I'll do my thing. When God designed marriage, he designed it to be a w- oneness. There was going to be a oneness and a unity there. Um, and and that is why we must, none of us take lightly the decision of who we marry, because that person will just by proximity have the greatest influence on us, and so in marriage, these men had become one with women who worshipped other gods, and so these women had rejected the very first commandment in the Ten Commandments, which is, you shall have no other god except for me, and so you've got to think about the impact that would have had on their family life, What would the home have looked like? There were probably going to be idols set up around the home, and the children would have watched their mother worship these idols, and they would have most likely been raised to do the same. Maybe you think, oh, well, it's not so bad, but what is the long-term generational impact of that? Ultimately, the Jewish faith in that compromise would have been diluted and diluted and diluted. And so God had given his people the commandment not to marry women from other nations who worshipped other gods in order to protect the spiritual life of his people. Okay, so we've got the problem. Ezra's been notified of this problem. Let's continue to read in chapter 9. How did he respond? From verse 3. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting and with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God saying, "O oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. My God, our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our gu- guilt has mounted to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the, land of the, kings, sorry, into the hand of the kings of the land to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. So Ezra is deeply, deeply grieved. By what he has just heard. He tears his clothing. These actions of tearing out his hair, tearing his clothing, fasting, that is, th- those are the actions of someone who's in deep mourning. Is this too an extreme reaction from Ezra? Let's think about it for a minute. Why had the people gone into exile in the first place? What had led to them being taken captive by Babylon? If we look in verse 7, it actually explains it It says there, from the days of our fathers to this day, we've been in great guilt, and for our iniquities, we, our kings, our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. The reason they'd gone into exile, many had suffered, many had lost their lives, was because they had turned away from God, because they had begun to worship other idols, they had disregarded God's commands, and they had gone on their own way, and so God had warned them that that exile was going to be the result, and so God had used Babylon as his agent of judgment, and now God has given them a second chance, and they've been allowed to return, and they've been allowed to start again. It's this new beginning, and what's happened? They've circled right back around to the exact place that they were, which originally resulted in their exile, and so Ezra loves God's people, and he loves God, and it's because of that love that he responds with such extreme emotion, You see, the opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference or apathy. So if Ezra did not love God and love his people, he would have sat there indifferent, unmoved. But he loves them. So he tears out his hair. He is absolutely devastated. He tears his cloak. He sits appalled. He fasts and he falls on his knees and he prays. And I was just challenged by my own response to sin in my life and and in in the world. And how often I respond in such an intellectual way, I rarely feel its weight. We see it as something we can tolerate or laugh about or simply accept. And so I'm struck by Ezra's response. He sits appalled. You see, he had come with a dream. He had come with a purpose. He was going to come and teach God's people all about God's ways. And he went on a really long, difficult journey for five months to get there. And he gets there, and within a few days, he finds out that this people you had such hope for are exactly sort of in the same position that led to their downfall in the first place. It must have been really, really hopeless for Ezra. And so he sees that simply applying, we must try harder. You know, we've been given a new chance. Let's just try harder. Let's just do better. Let's... Let's remember exile and let's not want to we don't want to go back there. That hasn't worked. That fear of punishment or that desire to try harder has not worked. And so the only thing that Ezra can think to do is to cry out to God. Because if he looks at his his own efforts or the efforts of his people, it has done has got them nowhere. And so he cries out to God in prayer. And so let's read his prayer continues in verse 13 of chapter 9. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. So he cannot see a way forward. He's feeling utterly hopeless. By this point, God's people should have been completely wiped out. Yet, having been sent into exile, God allowed them to return. He had given them a second chance out of his mercy But many years later, they're in the same place. What is going to happen? What is going to happen? Are they going to die out as a people? And what happens next, we're going to read about in chapter 10, changes the course of history for the people of God. Are they going to just keep looping round and round? Let's see. In chapter 10, verse 1, it says, While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children, according to the counsel of my Lord, and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. So, Ezra's sorrow and his grief, his crying out to God, had had an impact on the people. They had witnessed it and they had joined him. You see that they come, they, they join in this great assembly of men and women, and they weep bitterly. They see so clearly how they fall short of the glory of God, and how can they even stand before such a God? And so even though they've come full circle, where before when they'd got to that place, they had hard and unrepentant hearts. What we see here is a softening, a desire to be made right with God, a humility and a crying out to Him. And it is in this place of deep dependence on God that a spiritual awakening took place in the hearts of the people of God. And they found they were motivated to change, to make some very radical and quite difficult decisions in order to move away from a life of spiritual apathy and compromise. And so we see Shekinah brings a proposal. What changes could they make so that they do not continue on this path away from God, which would ultimately lead to their decline? And the proposal that he brings is this, that they put away the wives and the children. For the sake of time, I'm going to summarize what happens next. If you read in the rest of Ezra 10, you'll see that the people agree that this is the correct way forward for them to become right with God again. And so they gather all the people and then they come up with a plan, which rolls out over about three months because they realize this is a big decision and a hard thing to do that cannot just be done quickly. And so they get the elders of each city to meet with family by family as they sort of decide what to do with each of those families. But ultimately, they separate and send away those wives who continue to worship the pagan gods of their homelands along with their children. And this is where the book of Ezra ends. I'm sure like me, you have some really mixed (laughs) feelings about what we've just read, especially on Mother's Day. Um, We celebrate the fact that they Soften their hearts before God. We celebrate their humility, the way they cried out to God, yay. But then we are shocked and really don't quite know what to do with the fact that they separated families and sent women and children away. So no matter which way you look at the story, these women and children are the victims. They are bearing the consequences of the sin of a nation, but maybe more specifically, of their husband's disregard for following God's ways. Because it was that which resulted in a marriage that shouldn't have taken place in in the first place. We're not told where the women and children are sent, we're not told if they are well looked after or provided for, we simply do not know that. We are just told that this is what happened and this was the story. There is a lot that we can learn from the story But we don't use this story as a blueprint for our own (laughs) decision-making or as an endorsement of divorce. So divorce was never part of God's plan. Right right from the beginning when he designed and created marriage, it was something that was to last forever. When Jesus was challenged and asked about divorce, he he went right back to Genesis and explained that it was never actually an option. God joins men and women together in marriage and no man should ever separate that. He says the only reason that they were allowed to divorce in the Old Testament was because of the hardness of their hearts. And so if the story has left you feeling upset, maybe you feel angry, sorrowful, I believe that is in fact the correct response. Because sin is devastating. and And sin leads to sorrow and sin leads... To grief, And there are many of us in this room who have been the victims of other people's sin, and we've had to carry that hurt and that burden. Maybe the story of families being separated is very close to home for you, and it's brought up a lot of hurt and pain from your own life. And so I cannot avoid talking about sin now and its consequences, because it's so devastating to each one of us um, in, sh- in some shape or, fo- or form. And so the word sin... We're going to talk about it. We're going to go there. It's very uncomfortable, and I promise you, I don't enjoy talking about it, and you probably aren't very happy that I'm going there, but we're going there, guys. It's really lost its popularity, this word, um, especially as it seems to be something that erodes this value of self-love and, you know, self-esteem that our culture has, but understanding what it is, is key to Christianity, as that is the reason we believe Jesus came to this earth, was to save us from our sins. So if God created us to be in perfect unity with himself and to be in perfect unity with creation and with other human beings, then sin is all those things that drive a wedge between God and myself and between God and other people, or between God or between myself, uh, sorry, between God and myself, between myself and others, and even between myself and creation. It's those things that separate us. And as unpopular as it is to say We are all of us born sinners. So the problem with the world is not out there. It's not society or lack of education or politics. It's right here. It's inside every single one of us. It is us separating from God, and it is us separating from others. Sin is when we trust ourselves more than we trust God. And it starts with unbelief, which is what Paul preached on a few weeks ago, It actually starts from that place where we don't believe that God is really good, and we don't believe that He wants our best, and that He will look after us, and that He will protect and provide for us. And so we figure out that it's up to us to sort it out, and we have the scarcity mindset. We're all fighting over the same resources, so it's up to me to take control and to make it happen, which means we find ourselves telling lies at work to protect our reputations. Maybe we find that we're greedy, we struggle to be generous because we have the scarcity mindset, I need to look after myself because God won't look after me. We gossip, we we make ourselves feel superior to others around us because we don't find that we are um, sort of loved by God, we don't believe that, and so we need to find other ways to prop ourselves up. Or we find we become highly anxious and short-tempered in our desire to control our environments because we trust ourselves rather than trust God. The Bible is one long story dealing with this issue of sin. Story after story shows God's people trying really hard to be good people, but failing. Trying really hard, but failing. They keep going full circle, no matter how many new beginnings they have. We've just read a story like that in Ezra. They had this new beginning. They could start again, but they found themselves exactly where they used to be. And the result of your sin and my sin is that it always hurts. It hurts us and it hurts other people. The consequences are never just isolated to ourselves. So in many ways, if you read the Bible, you're going to find like a hopelessness as you read story after story of people trying but failing, trying but failing. And that would be a pretty depressing read, if not for the consistent whispers And stories of a redeemer and a savior that was going to come. That was promised and you can see him being promised in the Old Testament and the New Testament he arrives. A hope, there is a hope that lies not in the efforts of man but in the effort of a savior. And so Ezra who's left utterly hopeless when he looked at the people's continued disobedience. He was deeply aware at that point that their striving would always ultimately fail. Can you relate? I mean, you look like a bunch of people who try hard, who love new beginnings, and you want to do the right thing. How has your effort gone to live a good life, to do better? Have you been able to make it right between you and God? Have you been able to make it right between you and others? Or can you relate to that feeling that no matter how hard you try, you always miss the mark? I thought this was very interesting. The word sin in the original Hebrew actually means to miss the mark like an archer who's trying to aim for the target but misses the target. And so that's what sin is. It's missing the mark. Why are we trying so hard to be good people in the first place? That's a great question to ask. According to the Bible, one day every single one of us are going to face a judgment day where we're going to stand before God and we're going to need to give an account for the way that we've lived our lives. And because God is just, he cannot allow sin to go unpunished. He cannot turn a blind eye to the things that have resulted in all the pain and the hurt that we see in this world. And so maybe you're asking the question, well, then how good is good enough? You know, I'm not an awful person. I'm definitely better than, you know, the person down the road. I try my best to be nice. And you're probably right. You probably are a lovely person. But when you stand before God on judgment day, that won't count Because the only people who will be invited to spend eternity with God are those who are perfect, sinless. And sin separates us from God. So whether that is a small gap for you or a medium-sized gap or a really big gap, the truth is there's a gap. You are separated from your maker. And so we cannot spend eternity with him. And so you might say then, well, in that case, none of us can survive God's judgment. No amount of trying will ever get us there, and I believe that Ezra's grief, as he weeps and he cries, shows that he was starting to understand this truth, too. Left to ourselves, there really is no hope. We will circle back over and over, and exile is imminent, which is why Ezra turned to God and prayed. He knew that the only way forward was to fall on God's mercy, as only God could sort out the mess. So Ezra, he's a scribe, he would have known the scriptures really well, and he would have read of all the times that God had rescued his people. It wasn't an act of a a person, it was the mighty act of God. He rescued Noah and his family from the flood. He rescued Isaac by providing a ram. He rescued the people from famine through Joseph. He rescued his people from slavery through sending Moses. He rescued his people from Goliath by sending David. He rescued Daniel from the lions, and he rescued Nineveh by sending the prophet Jonah. Time and time again, God has shown us in Scripture that he is our only hope, and the only way for the cycle of sin to be broken was if God himself intervened, and he rescued them from themselves, which is exactly what God did. He sent a rescuer. And this rescuer, like Ezra, was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Let's read about Jesus Christ in Isaiah 53, verse 4 to 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, everyone, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. As Isaiah says, every single one of us has done this. We have all turned and gone astray and we have no way of getting back. Our sin has separated us from God. And no amount of trying to be good enough will solve this problem of sin, which is why it was always in God's mind to bridge that gap himself and to take that punishment that we deserved. And we see here the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In the story we read today, we see that it was the wives and the children who bore the consequence of the sin of the people. In our story of rescue, It is Jesus who bears the consequence of our sin. And that is why he came. He was sent away. He died outside the city gates. But he rose again. And he is alive in heaven right now. And because he lives forever, Hebrews 7 verse 25 says that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And so the good news of the gospel is that we can draw near to God. That gap has been bridged by Jesus Christ. And so when we put our trust in him, we are no longer separated from God. Instead, where does the separation happen? There's a separation between us and our sin. As far as the east is from the west, he has separated us from our sins. Why ever would Jesus Christ do such a thing? And to answer that question, I'm gonna read and end off with this. um, John chapter three, verse 16 to 18 from the Message Translation. This is how much God loved the world. He gave his son, his one and only son. And this is why, so that no one need be destroyed. By believing in him, Anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help, to put the world right again. Anyone who trusts in him is acquitted. Anyone who refuses to trust him has long since been under the death sentence without knowing it. And why? Because of that person's failure to believe In the one of a kind Son of God when introduced to Him. So maybe today is the first time that you've been introduced to this one of a kind Son of God. And if He had to ask you a question right now, it would be this Will you put your trust in me? And He isn't pointing His finger at you, telling you how bad you are. He already knows everything there is to know about you. He came to help you. In Jesus Christ, all your sin has been paid for and all that is left for you to do is to accept what he has done on your behalf. I'm also aware that there are a lot of people in this room who have heard this message before. This is what I have to say to you. No matter what part of the Bible we study, we will always circle back to the good news of the gospel. For the Christian, we never grow tired of hearing this. It sets our hearts on fire. It's why we come here every single Sunday to hear this message proclaimed again and again because we are forgetful people. And it reminds us just of how loved we are and how deeply known we are and how when we find ourselves in this loop of discouragement and hopelessness, our hope comes alone from Jesus Christ. And so my invitation to you is to once more stand in awe of your Savior. Maybe your heart's grown cold. You find yourself feeling lukewarm towards this amazing act of grace. Jesus Christ coming to die in your place and to take the consequence that you deserved. Let's stand in awe of this incredible res- rescuing work that he has done in our lives. So.